team for leading us in those songs of praise. Ephesians chapter 3. We're coming to the end of the first part of the Apostles' letter to the saints who are at Ephesus, according to chapter 1, verse 1. Some have divided this book into two sections, or two parts. A theological part, based on chapters 1 through 3, and then a more practical part that is comprised of chapters 4 through 6. Doctrine followed by practice. Or if you're in the academy, they would talk about theory followed by praxis. In the first part, it is what believers should or ought to know. That's what Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 talk about. And then in chapters 4 through 6, it is what believers should now do with what they know. The second part presents the practical part, the first part, the theory or the the theological perspective. So this morning we're finishing up that first part, the theological part. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wanted the recipients in the church at Ephesus to know these things. Our theme for this series of messages based on the book of Ephesians is both heavenly-minded and earthly good. It, too, maybe reflects that two-part sections of the letter to the Ephesians. The first three chapters present that heavenly-minded part, and chapters 4 through 6 really gets practical, the earthly good material. And indeed, these first three chapters of the book of Ephesians have provided us with a heavenly-minded perspective of life. A great example of that is found in chapter 2, verse 10, a verse that has really become, it's just captured my attention as we've made our way through this first section of the book. Notice it reads, Chapter 2, verse 10, for we are his workmanship. The New Living Translation says, for we are his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. Tell me that's not a heavenly-minded concept. We are God's masterpiece. Have you looked in the mirror lately? (laughs) Individually or collectively? Chances are you don't see something that you would say, wow, that's a masterpiece. (laughs) But from heaven's perspective, we are, present tense, his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works. How good is that? Both heavenly minded and earthly good. Philippians chapter 2 verses 12 to 13 focuses our attention on the other side of the coin, the, the other end of the 
continuum. The other end of that thematic statement, the earthly good perspective. Listen as I read. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Did you catch that? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you. As we come to the end of this first part of the book of Ephesians, the theological part, the the heavenly-minded part, the part where we have learned what, what God wants us to know, the Apostle Paul hits the pause button so that he can pray for these saints who are in the city of Ephesus. Remember, this was his initial intention at the very beginning of of chapter 3. Notice verse 1. For this reason, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of the Gentiles. And then he interrupts himself so that he can give a further explanation of this mystery of Christ that he refers to in verse 4. Meaning, of course, the church, named in verse 10. This brand new assembly of believers that incorporated both Jews and Gentiles into one body. And in first century Palestine, that was a revolutionary concept. Way beyond anyone's wildest imagination. Jew and Gentile in one body? Lord, how can it be? Additionally, Paul went on to make an appeal that they would not lose heart because of his present circumstances. Remember that he's in the city of Rome, incarcerated, held under house arrest when he writes this letter. And I would add, the reason he's under incarcerated is because he was found doing the good works that God prepared in advance for him to do. Verse 13, I ask that you not lose heart at my tribulations. And to flip that, and to state it more positively, we could turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Do not lose heart. Be encouraged. Keep on keeping on. That was Paul's appeal. And then, notice, Paul bowed his knees before the Father. And in verses 14 to 21, to the end of the chapter, we have this prayer that he prays for believers in the church at Ephesus. 
And this is not the first time that he's prayed for these people. Back in chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, he prayed that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. So back in chapter 1, it was a prayer for enlightenment. I wonder what he will pray for this time. Let's find out. Stand with me, if you're able, for the reading from God's Word, beginning at verse 14. We'll read through to the end of the chapter. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, in verse 14 of Ephesians chapter 3, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through, the, through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. This is God's word to us today. You may be seated. Father, teach us, we pray. Thank you for providing and preserving reliable copies of your inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, and sufficient written revelation. Apart from which we would not know what we ought to know. So give us spiritual wisdom and insight so that we might know in our, our, grow in our knowledge of you. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we can understand the confident hope you give to those who have been, you have called. Your holy people who are your rich and glorious inheritance. And we are included in that company. Enable us also to understand the incredible greatness of your power toward us who believe. So that empowered by your spirit, we will fulfill the good works you have prepared in advance for us to do. Both as individuals, as a local church. For your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We are his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. John chapter 15, verse 5 reads, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. For apart from me, you can do nothing. From the vine and branch analogy, 
we learn that fulfilling those good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them requires us to abide in Christ. For apart from him, we can do nothing. No wonder the Apostle Paul hit the pause button to pray. Notice verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. The New Living Translation reads, When I think of all this, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. When I think of all this, all what? For this reason, what reason caused Paul to fall to his knees and pray? Perhaps it was they, and Paul includes himself. Perhaps it is because they had been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, according to chapter 1 and verse 3. And then following that declaration, the Apostle Paul goes on to give not a comprehensive list, but an impressive list of the kinds of blessings that he showered on his people. Or maybe it was those two supernatural transformations that he talks about in in chapter 2. The first was personal, but not private. They went from, you are dead in your trespasses and sins, to being God's masterpiece. What a transformation. The second transformation involved the dismantling of a long-standing dividing wall that existed between Jew and Gentile. So that in Christ, Jew and Gentile became part of one new man. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 comes to mind. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Namely, you have become fellow citizens, part of God's household, according to verse 19 of chapter 2. It's more commonly known as the church. It could be that the Apostle Paul was thinking in terms of the more immediate context just prior to beginning his prayer. Remember, he interrupted himself at the end of verse 1, but just prior to that, look at the end of chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. In whom, that is in Christ, the whole building being fitted together. If you've not already underlined that phrase, you may want to do that. Being fitted together. Growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together. Another phrase worth underlining. Being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And then chapter 3 begins. For this reason. Or in the New Living Translation. When I think of 
all this. Like Jesus in John chapter 17, the Apostle Paul's musings on this new oneness created in Christ. And remember, Jesus was walking towards the Garden of Gethsemane where he would be betrayed. And he's praying. And of all the things he could have prayed for, he prays for this oneness. Here too, Paul prays for oneness created by Christ. Between believing Jews and Gentiles, being fitted together and built together, he bowed his knees, as we should, and invite God's involvement. I should mention that bowing or bending the knees was not the customary posture for prayer in first century Palestine. If you go to the weeping wall today in the old city of Jerusalem, you'll see the Orthodox Jews standing in front of the wall, rocking back and forth, making their appeals. That was a common practice, or the common posture of prayer. Mark chapter 11, Jesus was instructing his 12 closest followers on the subject of prayer when he said, Therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted to you. Whenever you stand praying, Jesus was not telling them that they needed to stand to pray. It was just an assumption that they would be standing, praying. That was the custom of the day. However, the New Testament does report other occasions when people knelt to pay. Exceptions to the rule. You'll remember Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, of course. Luke chapter 22, verse 41. And he withdrew from them, from the remaining eleven, but a stone's throw, and he knelt down and he began to pray. Near the end of Acts chapter 7, Stephen, a leader in the New Testament church at Jerusalem, was being stoned to death for his defense of the gospel. In verse 60, we're told, Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. In other words, he died. The Apostle Paul, at the end of a very emotional farewell to elders from the church at Ephesus, And at this gathering, everyone knew that Paul was about to head into the eye of the storm as he returned to the city of Jerusalem. In verse 36, it reads, When he had finished speaking, he knelt and prayed with them. They all cried as they embraced and kissed him goodbye. They were sad most of all because he had said that they would never see him again. Then they escorted him down to the ship. 
So although not a common practice, kneeling to pray was not unheard of in Paul's day. And what do all of these examples have in common? Desperate times call for desperate measures. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, Stephen, in the midst of being stoned to death, Paul, when saying a final farewell to some dear old friends who also happened to be elders in the church at Ephesus. And finally, here in Ephesians chapter 3, for this reason, when I think of all this, I bow my knees. Desperate times call for desperate measures. This is no ordinary prayer. Paul is passionate. He is acknowledging that apart from God's supernatural enablement, none of this good theology that he had presented in the first chapters 1 through 3, it just won't be possible. Beloved, it's okay to make Request to God in desperation. Recognizing, being aware and acknowledging our own limitations, our inabilities, our powerlessness. And yet we're invited to come. And not just come, but come with boldness and confidence. Look at verse 12 in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him, through faith in Jesus. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Bowing his knees before the Father suggests an intimate face-to-face encounter with our Father who is in heaven. Here Paul acknowledges the Father as the one who, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. New Living Translation reads, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. That's who we're addressing when we bow our knee to pray. Invite God's involvement in your life and in the life of of the ministry of the Rock Community Church. Make those prayers a personal priority. Join our prayer meeting on Tuesday night. If not in person here at the church, then join us online. There's another group that meets online. Let's get desperate and with a sense of urgency in our prayers for TRCC. Prayer is the verbal acknowledgement that apart from him, we could do nothing. Nothing that would qualify as both heavenly minded and earthly good. Father, we invite your involvement in each of our lives as we are being fitted and built together as the Rock Community Church. Invite God's involvement 
And secondly, ask for his empowerment. Look at verse 16. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Request number one, strengthen us with your presence and power. This is not something you'll gain down at the good life or over at the YMCA. Paul's not speaking of physical stamina or physical strength. This is on the inner man. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 makes the distinction. Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. And 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4 may help as well. But let it be the hidden person of the heart as opposed to being preoccupied with personal externals. Let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of gentleness and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. The inner man, our soul or our spirit or our heart, that imperishable part of us, that is temporarily housed in this physical container. As Joshua accepted the leadership responsibilities for the nation of Israel, Moses has just died. And God commissions him with this, these words. Joshua chapter 1 verse 6. Be strong and courageous. In verse 7 says the same thing. Only be strong and very courageous. Lo and behold, in verse 9 we find, this is my command. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Notice it was calling for a strength from within, from the inner man, based on the promise of God's enduring presence, Isaiah chapter 40 verse 10 says much the same thing. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Paul prayed that this inner strength would be provided. Not on the basis of their performance or the circumstances that they might find themselves in at any given time, but according to the riches of his glory. In other words, out of the abundance of his unlimited riches, God's resources. Apostle Paul, in his expression of gratitude for the generous gift received from a church located in the city of Philippi, wrote these words. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. This is not about muscle and brawn, but an internal strength and courage that is sourced in a relationship with God who has access to unlimited 
resources. And notice it's through the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that takes up residence in the life of every believer the moment they repent of their sin, ask God for forgiveness, and by faith begin believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Back in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, we read, Having also believed, you are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. The indwelling Spirit of God delivers the presence and power of God right into our inner man. God, strengthen us with your presence and power. Request number two, assure us of your immeasurable love. Look at verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts. In other words, that Christ would be at home in your heart and in my heart. In the very control center of our lives. That he'd be at home there. Not just as Savior, but he wants to be Lord, the, the leader of our lives. John chapter 14, verse 21 reads that he who has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Obedience invites intimacy. The words of Revelation chapter 3 verse 20 paint a mental picture, give us an image in our minds. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. Paul was asking that these believers in the church at Ephesus would enjoy an intimate relationship with God. There's an article titled, My Heart, Christ's Home, written by Robert Boyd, or, yeah, Robert Boyd Munger. It was written back in 1951 and has stood the test of time. I think I put it on the sermon handout notes. There's a link there. You can put that into your computer and it will take you right to this very article. I find it really helpful. It speaks of the lordship of Jesus Christ, how he wants to become the leader of your life and mine. But back to verse 17, notice, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded, Paul mixes his metaphors here, takes one from the whole area of agriculture or horticulture, rooted, and the other from architecture, grounded or foundation. This rooting and grounding notice is a result of Christ being at home in your heart. And that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints. Notice this comprehension is accessible to all. What is the depth and length and height and depth and to know, not just comprehend mentally, to know about this love, but to apprehend it, to experience it personally. The love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. What an interesting concept. 
the love of Christ, that you might know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. You'll never be able to fully understand God's love intellectually or rationally. Eventually, it just doesn't make sense to our finite minds. But it can be apprehended. You can experience it personally, up close, personal. God, assure us of your immeasurable love. Then notice that final phrase at the end of verse 19. So that, or that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Request number three, fill us with your uncontainable fullness. A commentator included this personal illustration that I found really helpful as I studied this week. Perhaps it's because of the two years that Cynthia and I spent in Jupiter, Florida. In those two years, we walked many miles down Jupiter Beach on the shores of the Atlantic Ocean. So I find myself relating to this illustration. Several years ago, my wife and I stood on the shore of the vast Pacific Ocean there on the other coast. Two finite dots alongside a seemingly infinite expanse. And as we stood there, we reflected that if I were to take a pint jar and allow the ocean to rush into it, in an instant, my little jar would be filled with the fullness of the Pacific Ocean. But of course... I could never put the fullness of the Pacific Ocean in that little jar. Because Christ is infinite, he can hold all the fullness of deity. But whenever one of us finite creatures dips the tiny vessel of our life into him, we instantly become full of his fullness. We can always be open to hold more and more of his fullness. And the more we receive of his fullness, the more we can yet receive. This will be our experience in eternity. The ultimate elevation of our souls will be loaded with the fullness of God, integrated more and more into his fullness. What a great illustration. I love that. God, fill us with your uncontainable fullness. Invite his involvement. Ask for his empowerment. And then finally, desire God's glory. Look at verse 20. Now to him who is able. Remember that little chorus we used to sing? He is able, he is able. I know he is able, I know my Lord is able to carry me through. He healed the brokenhearted and he set the captive free. He made the lame to walk again and he caused the blind to see. He is able, he is able. I know he is able. I know that my Lord is able to carry us through. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly and beyond all that we ask or think. Beloved, we dare not underestimate 
what God is capable of doing in and through us, both individually and or collectively. It is also easy, easy to either think too highly of ourselves, individually and or collectively, or to swing to the other extreme, to think too lowly of ourselves. Perhaps that's why the writer of Hebrews encourages us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. It was D.L. Moody who claimed, the world has yet to see what God will do with man or woman or local church that is fully concentrated, consecrated to him. And I would add, not only fully consecrated to him, but connected to one another. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. We've talked about the theological part and then the practical part in the book of Ephesians well this is the first 11 chapters of Romans are the theological part and this is the very beginning of the practical part when he writes in verse 1 therefore I urge you brethren by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God which is your spiritual service of worship and do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what, is the, what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. You and I cannot imagine what God can accomplish in and through us. That is what Paul is suggesting here in his doxology. Now to him who is able to do more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. With every beat of our hearts, Every song that we sing, every prayer that we pray, every offering we bring, and every thought that we have, every word that we say, be glorified. Oh Lord, be glorified. Be glorified. In everything we say, everything we do, be glorified. In every situation, every conversation, be glorified. You see, it's all about his power at work in us. So that through our actions and reactions, our words and our deeds, 
We display his power. And he is glorified. He gets the credit that only he deserves. Because apart from him, we can do nothing. So let's pray. Inviting his involvement, asking for his empowerment, desiring his glory in all that we do, say, and accomplish. Father, we invite your involvement, acknowledging that apart from you, we can do nothing, nothing that will bear fruit that will last for all eternity. We ask for your empowerment so that we can accomplish those things that you have prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Strengthen us with your presence and power. Assure us of your immeasurable love and fill us up. Fill us up with your fullness so that we are able both individually and collectively as the Rock Community Church to bear fruit, more fruit, and much fruit, fruit that pleases you and brings you much glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.